Welcome to The Shalene Show. Shalene is a New York Times bestselling author, celebrity fitness trainer, and obsessed with helping you live your dream life. Yo, what's going on? Hey, thanks so much for joining me on The Shalene Show. Happy you're here. Actually, I'm grateful you're here. I'm blessed that you're here. I would write you a thank you note if I knew your address, and I would say thank you so much for spending time with me. You're really in for a treat, though, I have to tell you, because today I have one of the most outspoken treating physicians on the front line of the war on obesity. He's controversial, he's passionate, he's determined, and he's got the clinical experience to back up his position. With a medical degree from the University of Toronto, he went on to complete a fellowship in nephrology at UCLA, and he currently practices as a kidney and weight loss interventionist. His experience in treating thousands of insulin-resistant patients led him to seek alternative forms of healing because Dr. Fung found that with most of his patients, following the traditional medical protocol for type 2 diabetic patients, they were getting sicker. And Fung rejected this whole age-old ideology that insulin resistance should be treated with more insulin. His patients were getting sicker and they were getting heavier and they were having to take more and more insulin. It just didn't make sense. So he refused to continue to deliver medicine that seemed only to increase their level of obesity. As he puts it, the prevailing dietary recommendations for reducing dietary fat and reducing calories were clearly ineffective. In response to that, he founded his own clinic, the Intensive Dietary Management Program. And what they do is they provide a unique type of treatment focused primarily at this point on type 2 diabetes and obesity. And they teach people how to basically reverse their disease without having to use meds. Dietary intervention. He's gone on to be one of the most renowned and sometimes controversial experts in the area of weight loss resistance, insulin resistance, and the treatment of type 2 diabetes. He is the author of The Obesity Code and The Complete Guide to Fasting, and his latest book is yet to be released, The Diabetes Code. And in this episode, we'll discuss things like fasting, the myth around calorie reduction and exercising more, and answers to many of your questions about reversing disease and lots of persuasive science that only strengthens the case that we should pretty much reject the prevailing dietary recommendations that we've been following for too long. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, a man who I've been quite frankly obsessed with, Dr. Jason Fung. I have to tell you, I'm very honored and excited to be able to speak to you. I have been uh, studying your content and I've read all of your books and I've listened to a countless number of your podcast interviews and interviews on on YouTube, and so I'm I'm an expert in Dr. Fung. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's quite an honor. <laughs> Absolutely. Having said that, with all of the conflicting information, I think we could agree that there's a lot of false messaging out there. There's a lot of confusing information. You know, you spend ten minutes with one strong theory. And if you do your research, you can find another study that says, yeah, we can't confirm that or we can't substantiate that. So with all of this information and the average consumer just feels so overwhelmed, they just want rules. They just just tell me what's right. Tell me what's truthful. Tell me what works. What certainties are there when it comes to our nutrition? And this is the thing that always flabbergasts me a little bit. We know that just cutting calories 
doesn't work. We've all done it. It doesn't work. Every single study that's done it fails. And yet we still say this is our best advice. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's like the worst thing we could possibly do. So a lot of the what we talk about in terms of what to eat, most people are fairly close. That is, we should cut down sugar. We should cut down refined carbohydrates. So you find very few people who say, oh, you should eat a lot of white bread and white pasta anymore. Most people kind of accept that for obesity, it's probably not the best thing. A lot of the thinking on fat has completely changed. So if you look at the 80s, for example, everybody was low fat, low fat. And the term healthy fat didn't exist because it couldn't be fat and healthy at the same time. So that started to change in the kind of 2010s sort of thing where we started to realize that Mediterranean diets, which are very high in nuts, olive oil, avocados, fatty fish, these are really, really healthy foods. So then we started talking about healthy fats. And that's still turning to some extent. So there's some debate on saturated fat, for example, and we know about trans fat. So there's a lot of consensus in terms of the things that we should and shouldn't eat. What people don't talk about as much is, one, is uh, why people gain weight, which is this whole calories idea, because it's really the wrong paradigm. If you think about calories... Uh, and you believe in it's all about calories or a calorie is a calorie, you go down the wrong path because then you say, well, I can eat cookies, which are a thousand calories, or I could eat salmon with salad, and which is a thousand calories, and they will be equally fattening. And you'd have to be a fool to really think that. Everybody knows if you eat cookies for dinner every day, you'll get fat. If you eat salad and salmon for dinner every day, you'll get thin. So why did we think it's all about calories? Yet the messaging is still out there and it's pushed by a lot of uh, food companies, for example, the beverage companies that want you to think that you can drink that Coke and that's okay as long as you skipped your broccoli because that's the same number of calories. So that's one thing I think is really uh, missing is that understanding of what really causes obesity. And then the second question I always say is that if there's, there's really two questions in obesity. There's what to eat and when to eat. And we've also gotten the when to eat question completely wrong. We tell people to eat all the time. And why would you think that eating all the time will make you skinny? It doesn't even sound like it makes sense. I think the reason why we believe that makes sense is because we've been told a story or an analogy, which is why I'm never crazy about analogies when people will say, well, think about it. If you're constantly fueling the fire, the fire, it's like you know, stoking a fire, the flames get bigger, the metabolism revs stronger, just like a fire. So we hear these analogies and we go, okay, you know, I don't understand any of this on a cellular level, but I can picture a fire and I can picture stoking a fire. So I think part of the problem is kind of a reluctance from our days of chemistry of wanting to understand science and, and instead preferring to hear an analogy that we can repeat back to someone else and go, well, that makes sense. I need to stoke my fire and make sure I'm eating every two hours. Yeah, and this is the thing is that when people, enough people repeat it over and over, you think that it's just widely accepted knowledge. But my advantage is that I can actually go back and look at any of the studies that support it and don't support it. It turns out there's really no evidence, no studies that suggest that that is a good strategy. Then you can look back at history. Who in history has eaten six times a day? Nobody. Just like the obese nobody. Americans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The only people have done that, and they didn't do so well. 
So you can go back to any period of history, even 1950s America, uh, 1970s America. So I grew up in the 70s, and it was breakfast, lunch, dinner. There was no snacks. You wanted an after dinner, after school snack. Your mom would say no. You're going to ruin your dinner. You wanted a bedtime snack. They'd say no. There's nothing to eat. Uh, <laughs> and then all of a sudden it went from, and the studies bear this out. In 1977, if you look at the NHANES survey data, so these are large surveys of American eating patterns, you went from an average of three meals a day in 1977 to 2004, where you're now averaging six meals a day. So that's breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, snack. So there's been a huge change. You've almost doubled the number of times you've eaten, and clearly it hasn't done us any good. If it did, then you wouldn't see this entire obesity epidemic. And the uh, the idea doesn't make a lot of sense. It had no scientific backing. If you go back into the um, you know what you take for snacks, it's also really bad because you're taking a lot of processed carbohydrates crackers and cookies and all these low-fat candies and sugary yogurts and all this sort of thing and those foods are not great nobody is preparing like a nice grilled salmon for you to eat after school snack right it's just too much too time consuming so nobody's going to do that and so this is the other idea is that when to eat is very important and really that fasting is really the flip side of eating and you really want those to be in balance. That is, in the fed state, what you're doing is you're giving your body the instruction to store food energy. So you eat breakfast, lunch, dinner, you're eating more calories at that particular time than you actually need so your body stores it. When you don't eat, like when you're asleep uh, and technically any time you don't eat is considered fasting, then your body is going to pull some of that energy back out. So that's why you don't die every night when you go to sleep because your body has the ability to store it and pull it back out. So you want to keep those in balance, obviously. Well, let's talk about one of the most common perpetuations of a myth. I've heard you explain this so well, so if you can share this with my listeners, why it is restricting calories especially restricting calories in a diet that still has, you know, a, a higher percentage of carbohydrates, a higher percentage of proteins, lower fat, and you're on a restrictive diet. You're eating, say, you know, under 1,000 calories a day, under 800 calories a day, let's say. And why that is going to keep us fat and slow our metabolism, yet having no calories, i.e. fasting, actually puts us into a different mode of burning fuel. Can you help us understand the science? Yeah, and this is what's really interesting is because one of the things that we've known for a 100 years is that if you follow the sort of portion control strategy, that is, eat the same sort of meals, relatively high in carbohydrates, just eat a little less, but eat the same number of times sort of thing, which is six times a day, uh, one of the things we've known for many, many years, uh, at least a hundred years actually, is that our metabolism will slow in response to that. So suppose that you eat 2,000 calories a day, your weight is stable and so you burn 2,000 calories a day. So all of a sudden you decide to lose weight and you want to go down to 1,500 calories a day. Well, your body goes down and burns only 1,500 calories a day. It has to reduce. You can't run an energy deficit forever. It's just like if you have, if you make $100,000 a year, you spend $100,000 a year. If you all of a sudden go down and your salary goes down to 50000 a year, if you're smart, you will reduce your expenditures to 50000 And the body is the same. It doesn't want to die, so it 
reduces its expenditure. So now what happens is that you're eating 1500, you're burning 1500, your body actually gives you a little margin of safety. So it actually goes slightly below that. So you're maybe you're burning 1400. But the problem is that because you're burning less, you're more cold, you're tired, you're hungry, you're feeling lousy, but you're not losing weight. And then everybody says, well, but I reduced my calories. It's all about calories in, calories out, right? Not realizing that the really important thing is the calories out, not the calories in, because your body will make that adjustment. And this is the mistake that everybody makes. They say, well, if I reduce my calories by 500 a day, my intake by 500 a day, I'll lose weight. It has to. It doesn't have to because it depends on what you burn. The opposite is actually true as well. If you eat more calories, if you force feed people, their calorie expenditure will go up. So the body is smart. It will make that adjustment. And the thing is that the body has different mechanism when you bring those calories very, very close to zero because your metabolism cannot go to zero. Otherwise, you'd be dead. So instead, what it does is it switches its metabolism from burning food to burning fat which is merely stored food energy. And this is entirely natural. This is why you carry body fat. It's not there for looks. It's there for you to use if you don't have anything to eat. If you never don't have anything to eat, you'll just keep burning the food because it's like, why not? It's there. It's easy. You're never forced to switch fuel sources. As soon as you switch from burning food... When you say burning food, do you mean glucose or glycogen? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's mostly glucose, uh, but definitely the food energy that you take in, it comes as either proteins, carbohydrates, or dietary fat. Mm -hmm. So most of it, much of it, if you eat a lot of carbohydrates, is glucose. So you can go to a very low carbohydrate diet, and these are ketogenic diets, and that's one of the things that tries to force you to burn fat for fuel. But as soon as you start switching over to burning kind of stored food energy, then your body's like, whoa look, there's tons of this fat and it wants to burn 2,000 calories so it keeps burning 2,000 calories. So what happens when you fast is that your metabolism is maintained which means that you don't get that compensatory decrease which is what kills you in the long term because if you're burning 2,000 calories versus 1,400, there's a big difference. And what's ironic is that this is so, the so-called starvation mode. And everybody says, oh, if you skip meals, you'll go into starvation mode. And it's actually the opposite of true because if you restrict calories, you are guaranteed to go into starvation mode. If you don't eat anything, what doesn't put you into starvation mode is actual starvation. Because if you go to zero calories, your basal metabolic rate is maintained. And the studies all show this. But the dietitians and some of the lay people, they'll still insist, oh, you're going to go into starvation mode. You're going to do this. It's all about calories, that kind of thing. And I was just speaking to a group yesterday. I was just talking to them about it. I think it's uh, one of the most unfair things that we do is uh, in terms of obesity is that we give people advice to eat less and move more. So cut your calories. But we know for a fact that what happens is that as you cut your calories but don't adjust your meal timing, your metabolism slows. So therefore, their weight loss slows and then they regain weight. If you look at big databases, the uh, probability of attaining a normal weight is somewhere on the order of 0.5%. So, in other words, you have a 99.5% failure rate with conventional dietary advice for weight loss. 
And yet, when people fail to lose weight, then doctors like us, like me, will point the finger at these patients and say, it's your fault. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. like, that is the most unfair thing I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. Because when we tell people, we know they'll fail. We guarantee that they'll fail. And when they fail, we blame them for it and call them, oh, Mm -hmm. you're fat, you have no willpower, this and that, this and that. And it's like, no, the problem was not the people. The problem was that the advice was bad. Because look, if you think about it, we have this big obesity crisis. Somewhere around 50 to 70% of people are overweight. If you take obese, it's, it's lower than that. But if you think about a, a classroom, for example, and you have a teacher and one kid fails, that might be the kid's fault. But if 20 kids fail, that's the teacher's fault. So, so it's the same. It's the same thing. It's not the people's fault. It's the people giving advice's fault. But they Mm -hmm. don't want to say it's their fault. So, they always turn around and blame the victim. So, they point the finger and they say, no, I'm giving good advice. You're just too weak-willed to do it. And, And people believe it, right? So, they blame themselves and it's really horrible. Right. It's everything against the message you give out, which is, you know, empowerment and stuff. It's the most horrible thing we do. Yeah. And, you know, admittedly, I've been a part of that because I, I'm not an expert. I'm, admittedly, when I first started running across some of your work, I thought, I don't believe it, but I'm going to look like this seems really, really unsafe. I'm not even going to tell anyone, my audience in particular, <laughs> that I'm curious to know more because, well, then I'd be, you know, sharing knowledge that's harmful. But the more I researched and the more I looked at it, I'm like, okay, my mind is blown. Okay. And you just can't argue with science. Well, let's talk about the other big myth. What are some of the most common misconceptions about fats, types of fats, and how does that relate to what we've been told about cholesterol? Yeah, there's a couple of things. So dietary cholesterol has been known for like 50 years to not make any difference. So if you remember back uh, in the 80s, it was all about we were cutting out our eggs and shrimp because those were high in cholesterol. But we've actually known since the 60s that eating more cholesterol does not raise our blood levels of cholesterol. So it was a complete non-starter. There was no reason to cut those out at all. And recent evidence shows that eating eggs doesn't lead to, lead to heart disease, for example. So then it came down to the sort of fats. And there's been a, a bit of a change. Initially, they said uh, fat clogs your artery and therefore leads to heart attacks. And it wasn't really quite that simple. It was actually much more complicated than that. So then they divided it into saturated fat and monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats. So from going from all fat is bad, we went to sort of, well, there's healthy fats and these were the monounsaturated fats. Where we kind of have a lot of debate is saturated fat coming from natural sources. So I'm not talking Mm -hmm. about trans fats. Everybody agrees trans fats are bad. Those are artificially saturated fats. And Mm -hmm. some of the confusion came because some of the early studies lumped in trans fats with saturated fats. So when you look at the entire group together, you said, oh, wow, this is the saturated fats are really bad for you. So You can look at dairy and meat, for example, and those are highly saturated fats. 
And what you find when you look at them specifically is that it's really hard to find any evidence that the saturated fat in, say, dairy makes any difference. There's no increased risk of diabetes. There's no risk, increased risk of heart disease. There's no increased risk of weight. In fact, some of the studies, in fact, many of the studies show that higher intake of saturated fat, natural saturated fats, not trans fats, actually leads to lower rates of stroke and heart attack, which is fascinating because that means we're entirely wrong on that wow. um, thing. And and it kind of makes sense that the fats that we have been naturally eating, milk, fats, and animal fats, wouldn't be the cause of a, a recent disease. Like, how is it that you can eat fat for millions of years and it only causes heart disease in the last 30 years? Right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any sense. And what we've come to appreciate is that these so-called heart-healthy fats, so vegetable oils, are not really all that benign. So we all switched to margarine, for instance, because everybody told us that you should avoid butter, which is saturated fat, and take margarine, which is vegetable oil. Well, it turns out that vegetable oil is a highly, highly processed oil. It's not that good for you. You have to take, say, corn oil, for instance. You have to take literally tons of corn because corn is not oily and process 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 the hell out of it and get this oil you have to bleach it you have to deodorize it it's completely unnatural disgusting yeah Yeah. it really is and we have been told that this is completely great for us not realizing that for example and one of the things that people have probably heard about is this kind of omega-6 and omega-6 omega-3 ratio Vegetable oils are super high in omega-6, and when you throw the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 off, it's highly inflammatory Mm. and really, really Mm. bad for us. There you go. So, it it was very much um, a case of uh, sort of extrapolation of data and things like we gave advice like eat low-fat dairy. I always tell people eat full-fat dairy. If you're going to eat, you know, cheese, eat the full fat cheese, never eat anything Mm. with like light or anything like that. in it's title because you know that it's got all this processing, you're better off just getting the full fat cheese, full fat milk, full fat yogurt, all of that. And again, you can see the effect of some of this knowledge because you go to the supermarket. Now you see all this full fat yogurt and stuff, the butter, the amount of butter people have been using is on time magazine, right? Eat butter. And if you look at the amount of butter that America Americans are eating, it's going way up because we've kind of realized that there's no reason why you shouldn't eat butter. It was delicious and actually <laughs> not that bad for you. <laughs> My dad was right all along. I know. <laughs> uh, he used to say to us, you know, all oh, this diet food's going to kill you kids, you know, because we, my sister and I in the, you know, 90s, it was just like Diet Coke and Snackwell cookies. And, yeah. you know, he kept saying like, you know, all of this is going to kill you. And I remember being in a restaurant, him, we were ordering like our fat-free salads for an appetizer and he took a pat of butter. Yeah. and put it in his mouth and we were like disgusting <laughs> you're gonna die from that you know and meanwhile we're eating our like you know fat-free foods um and he gets the last laugh i guess <laughs> but my question is about fat and dairy and meats you've got these two sides like and there's documentaries that will make you never look at meat again and doctors and nutritionists and experts who are suggesting that we weren't meant to consume dairy and that it's really hard on our systems and inflammatory and that our, we should really be plant-based and vegan even to the extent that we're eating a high fat diet that's plant-based personally what do you think is 
best when we're looking at optimal health and just not being freaks about this, but just trying to eat our healthiest. What should our diet look like in terms of animal protein and plant-based fats? I think that there's no reason to avoid the animal fats. There is concern about sort of modern agriculture techniques where they're feeding cows mm-hmm. a lot of grain uh, so that those omega-6s are kind of being passed through. So that is a legitimate concern when you're talking about the way that we raise beef because cows are supposed to eat grass. We don't give them grass. We give them starch. We give them Grain. corn. Mm-hmm. And so there's a huge difference between grass-fed and kind of feedlot cattle. The huge difference in price too. The feedlot cattle is much, much cheaper. So unfortunately, the majority right, of what right. we eat is feedlot cattle. And does that make a difference? It's possible. I don't know that there's any data to say that. The ethical discussion is completely separate and I don't really have any strong Mm -hmm, opinion mm -hmm. about that but from a health standpoint I think that if you're eating meat or vegetable is fine you know that in history if you look at native populations there are no vegetarian populations there are people who didn't eat a lot of Mm -hmm. meat because it wasn't available but Mm -hmm. when it was available they ate it so it's not something kind of intrinsically human For optimal health, do you believe we need it? For optimal health, do you believe that we need animal protein to some extent? There are certain amino acids that are low. So when you look medically, there are certain things like vitamin B12. For instance, vegans can get vitamin B12 deficiency because they don't eat meat. And that's one of the vitamins that's only available. That's fairly well known. So most vegans and vegetarians will take vitamin B12 supplements. But there are also certain amino acids that are um, not easily obtainable in vegetable sources. So maintaining a little bit of kind of meat or eggs or that sort of thing is likely easier than trying to replace them with supplements. Mm -hmm. So from an optimal health standpoint, leaving all ethical uh, issues aside, I think you Mm -hmm. could do well with a a mostly vegetarian diet. And certainly there are traditional populations who eat 70, 80% of their diet as vegetarian and with a little bit of meat and do very well because the, the meat protein is absorbed very, very efficiently so that you don't actually need very much. And most Americans eat much more than is necessary. And that's what I think. I mean, I think even carbohydrates it's not so much the carbohydrate. I think it's the processing that takes place in the carbohydrates and the meats and the oils that is the real issue. We've gotten very far from eating sort of real food. If you look at carbohydrates, like you take wheat and then you strip out all the fat, you strip out all the protein, then you grind it into a very fine dust, and that's flour. And it's like it's pure carbohydrate. It looks nothing like the original wheat berry. And then you say, wow, wheat is bad for you. But I'm like, I'm sure that if you ate the wheat without the grinding, because the modern flour mill grinds it much finer. So just like cocaine, for example, the reason they grind it up is because the absorption is much, much, much higher. So that makes a huge difference. If you take flour versus something which is, say, stone milled or one of these more traditional ways, there's a big difference in the rate of absorption. So insulin just goes spiking way up with flour, whereas Mm -hmm. kind of wheat berries and stuff, and same with oatmeal. So if you get the instant stuff, 
it will spike up way high. If you get the old stuff, the old school stuff, where you have to cook it for 45 minutes because the damn thing wouldn't ever soften, right? <laughs> right, right, <laughs> And right. I remember that. It was a pain to eat. You never ate it because it took so long to cook. And uh, that stuff is just going to, the absorption is going to be a lot slower and probably it's a reasonably healthy food, a reasonably good for weight loss, and yet still carbohydrates. Beans is the same. Beans is very high in carbohydrates, but there's a big difference. So if you look at the bean, it has carbohydrates called amylopectin, but they're a different type of amylopectin than, say, it found in flour. So that, that has amylopectin A, which is very easily absorbed, whereas beans are amylopectin C, which is very slowly absorbed, so therefore you don't get the spiking insulin, spiking glucose. So mm-hmm. it's it's a little simplistic just to go about and say, oh, all carbs are bad. I don't believe that. I believe that you could eat a number of carbs, but the key is really to keep it simple is to stick to whole unrefined foods as much as possible in their natural state in the way that they were eat real food i I think that is more important than any of the other messages so vegetable oils even though i say you should eat a high fat diet it doesn't mean you eat a lot of vegetable oils those are highly processed foods and you don't eat a lot of hot dogs because there's all kinds (laughs) of junk in hot dogs and it's a highly processed meat and i don't think you should eat it if you want to compare them then you should eat kind of natural beef or pork or chicken and not the sort of processed uh, version of it. And mm. this is where people get into trouble because they say, oh, well, I went to the grocery store. I got chicken nuggets and that's chicken. So yeah. that's good. And like, oh, no, it's not good. It's so <laughs> highly processed. You, you should really get chicken. You know, what's a shame is that we're, we're having these conversations about kind of how to fix our own thinking, how to change the way that we eat, how to, to reverse our habits of snacking and eating every two hours and that we're trying to change the way we as adults eat but yet I know and I'm going to challenge any of my listeners who have children to recognize that if this is poisonous if this is killing us if this is making us obese then why as the person who has the credit card and a driver's license why are you going to the grocery store and doing the same things to your kids and putting sugary gummy fruit snacks into their you know lunch boxes and we put our kids on sporting events it kills you know i went to a track event last night my daughter's in high school and here are these amazing track athletes that are training their butts off and the second they cross the finish line they all run up into the stands they open up their backpacks and i watched them pull out chocolate covered pretzels and gummy fruits and you know these sugary sports drinks and i'm I'm thinking you know these kids didn't buy this stuff their parents yeah. did. We we have to we have to start with our kids too. I'm not suggesting that kids should be fasting, but there's something for recognizing if it's poisonous to you and it's put you in this horrible situation. Why are we continuing yeah. to do this to our kids? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely. And it starts with the kids because we teach them that you should eat, you know, 50% carbohydrates, grains and so on. And we don't teach them what the difference is, what's real food, what's not real food. I think we're teaching them 100% carbohydrates. You know, if you look yeah. at if you look in the lunch boxes of any of these kids or what what's on their plates in in the cafeteria, it's absolute poison. 
And that's because it follows the national guidelines. So the guidelines set the stage. So schools really have to follow that kind of dietary guidelines for Americans because they're like, well, this is the experts say you should eat 50, 60% carbs. Therefore, at the school, we're mm-hmm. going to eat 50, 60% carbs. Mm-hmm. Here's some French fries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's, that's what happens. And unfortunately, we don't teach proper nutrition. And so fasting aside, I mean, we're talking about a whole area. I mean, I look at what my kids, my kids are 10 and 13. And what we teach them is you should snack all the time. I look yeah, at their schedule. It's breakfast. Then they get the mid-morning snack. Then yes. they get lunch. Then yes. they get an after-school snack if they go to after-school program. Yes. Then they go to soccer. And in between the halves, they get a snack. Yes. And then it's like that's six times a day. And we yes. tell them it's good. And the other thing is that we teach them the sort of official dietary advice, which is still low fat. Uh, unfortunately, it, it's moving, but not very quickly. When my kids run a, a sports teams, they always, you know, they would assign a different parent each week to show up after the games with, you know, the snack. It, like it was life or death. Like, you know, if these kids finish playing, if they didn't have a cupcake, some parent was going to pay the price, right? <laughs> these kids yeah. should have to finish a game and not have a juice box and a cupcake. And the stress, and I, I kept thinking, can't we all just figure out how to feed our own kids? Do we really have to like figure out what sugary snacks and who can be like, you know, the most popular mom because she brought the coolest snack after a game? Like, let's just all feed our kids. Yeah, I remember it's like soccer. Oh, who brought the freezies? Oh, it was like great, (laughs) right? And, and, And the thing is that they don't need snacks. I mean, I played all through the 70s and 80s and nobody stopped in the middle to eat. We just played and played and played, and it was fine. There was no problem with that. And we think we have to eat all the time, but we don't. It's it's simply not uh, necessary. And that's the sad part of uh, what we're teaching our kids, is that we're teaching them almost everything completely wrong. But as I said, the, the guidelines are slowly changing. Yep. They've moved away from this sort of, you know, high carbohydrate, low fat. They're kind of recognizing they haven't gone so far as to say, oh, you should cut your carbs and stuff. But it's kind of one step at a time. The 2015 dietary guidelines actually removed the cap on total fat. Whereas for two decades, it had been don't eat more than, you know, 30 percent fat. Now that's gone. So it, it, there is progress there. Yes. But. One of the things that people still don't talk a lot about is the snacking. I think it's really bad. I mean, yeah. as, as I said, you don't have to go back that far. You can go back to 1970s America. Three meals a day, no snacks, very little obesity. And guess what? We played soccer just fine. Right? Yep. You don't yep. need that snack, that juice box in the middle yeah. to go play. It's funny. I watch any program from the 70s, you know, whether it's news or movies. And I think, gosh, people were so much more fit then. They didn't look so puffy and swollen. And the last question I want to ask, um, and by the way, I'm looking up on my bookshelf. I've got lots of your books and want to recommend to my audience that they take a look at The Obesity Code and also The Complete Guide to Fasting, both incredible books. What will your next book be about? Um, I actually finished just finished the manuscript. Oh. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a book specific to type 2 diabetes. Got so it. that is actually probably doesn't affect as many people, but mm-hmm. is one of the ones that's closer to what I actually do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the key message in it is that both prediabetes and type 2 diabetes is a completely reversible mm. condition 
as long as you apply the correct dietary strategies. So it's a, it's a book similar to the obesity code. It will be called the diabetes code, mm-hmm. which is going to show you, kind of take you through how we've kind of misunderstood the disease. We've treated it with medications when we really should have treated it with diet. Yes. And how you can apply the diet to reverse your own diabetes. Now, of course, if you're on medications, you would have to uh, get your physician mm-hmm. to over oversee you. And the other thing I'll just mention, um, just talking about the books, is that online there's a lot of resources as well. And mm-hmm. one of the really good ones is dietdoctor.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a low-carb uh, website with a lot of information on intermittent fasting I'm there as well and Dr. Fung is there a site that you would suggest my listeners can find out more specifically from you yeah, so my website is www.intensivedietarymanagement.com. It focuses mostly on science and has some information for patients and so on, and not so much on recipes and mm-hmm. that sort of yeah. thing. But that you can you can contact us through the website and so on. So both of those websites are terrific. Well, I can't thank you enough. Your schedule is very busy, and I know you're in demand around the clock. So I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy schedule to impart your wisdom and your message with my listeners. I really do think what you're doing is remarkable and it's going to have a change it's going to have an effect on our society to me the biggest reward is to see people get better to get those emails that say oh i did this and i took off all my insulin and i'm feeling so much better you know there's nothing there's nothing like that it's 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 incredible you're right it's awesome well thanks again it's been a pleasure oh absolutely thank you interested in being in test groups for my upcoming metabolism program Awesome. To get on the wait list, go to dietbetatest.com. Again, that's dietbetatest.com. Enter your name, your email address, and you'll be first to know when we open up our next test group. Please keep in mind that we are not able to admit those who may have any type of medical condition under a doctor's care for chronic illness. If you are pregnant, breastfeeding, trying to get pregnant, or in recovery from an eating disorder. Test groups are specifically for those who have identified themselves as weight loss resistant, struggling with your ability to lose weight. This is not an exercise program. Rather, test participants should have a minimum of 10 pounds to lose and have struggled for six months or more with weight loss resistance. To learn more or to be notified when we're conducting our next beta test, please go to dietbetatest.com. Again, that's dietbetatest.com.